0: We turn this morning to uh, Matthew 23, uh, 22 rather, um, the last section, uh, verses 41 to 46, uh, Matthew 22, 41 to 46. <clears throat> and you remember that Jesus has been talking to uh, a number of groups of people and in verse 41 picks it up. if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. For from that day, nor, nor from that day, did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Father, we come to, again to your word. We help, pray that you'd help us to rightly understand it. One of the things we face as Christians is always the desire to give quick and easy answers rather than probably think things through. And we pray you'd help us, therefore, to think things through today. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, over the last few weeks, uh, when I've been preaching, we've been looking at um, Jesus fielding a number of questions from various groups of people. you may remember what they are, the Pharisees, uh, the Herodians, the Sadducees. Uh, and they're, they're all different groups with different um, opinions about things and different emphases and desires and political desires. And uh, so they have all differences between each other. However, they're all united in one particular desire, which is to find fault with Jesus. And... Uh, and to do so in order that they can have a reason, a justification for arresting him and removing him from the picture. He's a problem. He's a bit of a political problem for some of them. And so these men uh, come to Jesus with a number of different questions. Interesting, topical questions. Uh, for that time, there was a political question, you may remember, uh, some. F- Pharisees sent their disciples to, to ask him, who, you know, should you pay taxes to Caesar uh, or not? A politically loaded question for that time. Then there was a theological question from the Sadducees, uh, really about the validity of the resurrection. Do, is there actually a resurrection? And, and then, there was, thirdly, there was a, a biblical question from a, a scholar, a lawyer, who came to Jesus. And say, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And, uh, and so Jesus gives the answer. So we have all these questions that come of different kinds, trying to find uh, a problem with Jesus. And what we, what we need to remember about questions is that questions are never, I think it's true to say, questions are never asked without motive. Questions are never asked without presuppositions and prior assumptions that people have. And so they have reasons for asking questions. And some of them are not good reasons. You know, what's the most... Why do people ask questions? Well, the obvious answer is to get an answer. Uh, And maybe sometimes people do ask questions because they don't know and they want an answer. Or they're unsure or they doubt the answer. And they want to be confirmed in the answer. Now that's a good reason to ask a question. To to grow in your knowledge and your understanding of things. Um, But there are other reasons why people ask questions. What if you ever watched uh, Prime Minister's Question Time? Uh, you're a kind of nerd like me that, that watches these things. And uh, you know the, the leader of the opposition gets up and uh, he's got his six questions he gets to ask the Prime Minister. And it doesn't matter which party it is, both, they both do the same thing. Uh, I've been, here, been around long enough to see this. And uh, so the leader of the opposition gets up at uh, Prime Minister's Question Time and he asks the questions. Of the Prime Minister. Now is he asking the questions because he wants to know the answer? No, he already knows, that. he thinks he knows the answer. But there's a, there are two possible reasons why somebody asks questions like that. One is to, to make your opponent look small. To make him look like an idiot. Like a fool. Or, or to make him think that there's something he hasn't considered. Well, the other reason for asking a question like that is to to make yourself look good, to make yourself look big and important and a bit of a smarty pants. Aha, I've got you with that question. And uh, it can be quite entertaining, I suppose, if you like that sort of thing. Uh, But this is the kind of questions that these Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians were coming to Jesus with, not to find an answer to the questions but actually to try and make them look good in front of all the people and to try and make Jesus look small and to get him to make a mistake and so that they can then have him arrested and taken away. So they're not really looking for answers. And their efforts meet with no success whatsoever. Because Jesus is able to answer the questions. And to do so in a way that leaves people marveling and being astonished at the very nature of the answers that he gives. Because Jesus seems to take it to a new level. He seems to respond with answers that they haven't thought of. And now at this point, Jesus himself takes the initiative. And asked them a question. And it's a very simple question. What do you think about the Christ? And that's what we're going to think of this morning. What do you think about the Christ? And that's the, the first thing to say about that is it's the most important question of all. What do you think about Christ? You can't get a more important question than this. And all those questions that... Those Pharisees and others asked Jesus are are all interesting in their own way, but but they're on the edge of what's really important. You see, where all these people, the ones asking the questions and all the crowds looking on, uh, all these people, none of them seem to know who it is they're really speaking to. And the most important issue is who is this man that's standing in front of you? And how are you going to respond to him? Who is this Christ? You know, people today, uh, when they're who are not Christians, you know, they often come up with questions that are about Christianity, that are on the edge of things, on the periphery of things. And so, for example, they might raise a political issue about Christians, they think, have certain political views. They might be right about that. But but what they do is they say, well, I don't agree with their politics, therefore I can't agree with Christianity. Or they might raise a a doctrinal question, and they say, well, I can't believe those doctrinal points you're making. They seem a bit weird to me, frankly, and therefore I can't believe uh, and be a Christian. Or think about the moral standards that we stand for as, as Christians, where we, you know, we take a view on human sexuality, we take a view on marriage or abortion or, or whatever the moral issue is, and people will say, Well, I, I don't agree with those things, and therefore I can't accept Christianity. But none of those things actually get to the the, the core issue and to the most important question Who is the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? What do you make of him? Who is he? What did he come to do? Why does it matter? All of these things are the central questions. Sometimes I wonder if professing Christians have actually settled this matter. I've met many of them in my time in Solihull, and some have even come to this church. And as you get to know these professing Christians, you begin to wonder if they've really settled this question of what do you make of Jesus Christ? Who is the Christ? These are professing Christians. They seem to be interested in the peripheral things about church life. Or politics or this and that. The question is, have you, have you actually settled this question? What do you make of Jesus Christ? How have you responded to Jesus Christ? That's the big question. Now, it is a big question, isn't it? What do you think about Christ? It's a kind of, uh, it can go in all kinds of directions. Uh, and so Jesus immediately narrows down the question by asking a, a second question. Whose son is he? And it's then that the answer comes. And so i move on to the second point. is What's the right answer to this question? I guess the Pharisees thought they could answer it quite easily. Because immediately they say, the son of David. And in a sense, that's the right answer. Uh, it's, it's a... F- it's the answer that biblical prophecy gives. And so these are Pharisees. They'll be well-schooled in the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, they would know the prophecies about the Christ. And so they, they would know that he's the son of David. So it's probable that they had 2 Samuel chapter 7 in mind. And that's where Nathan, the prophet, comes to King David. And David is established in his throne. But he's thinking about uh, a temple for God. If you remember, the tabernacles, uh, or the Ark of the Covenant is, is in a tent. And the tabernacle is, doesn't have a home yet. And he thinks, I can build a, a temple for God. And God says, no, it's not for you to do that. It will be for your son Solomon to do that. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish for you your throne. I'm going to establish a house for you. And a descendant of yours will sit on the throne. And this throne will be established forever. Of course, that's a great prophecy. That the son of David will come and sit on the throne of David. The throne of God, if you like. So Nathan says, I will raise... uh, says... What's God in saying, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's going far beyond Solomon. This is about the household of God that he's building, and there's going to be one on the throne And later in 2 Samuel 7, 17, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Recently in our midweek Bible study, we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 3 and uh, uh, talking about the house of God. And Moses is a servant in the, in the house of God. And Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is the son over the house of God. And here it is, he is the heir who sits on the throne, who's the ruler, the king. And he inherits the house, and the house is his, the household of God. This is the household that God is building. And he sits on the throne of David, ruling over it. Because all all of this is referring to the Messiah, the Christ who's going to come. Or here Jeremiah, so 300 years, 400 years later, He writes this in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He shall reign as king. Or Ezekiel. Chapter 34. And I will set over them, the people, the the flock, one shepherd, my servant David, And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. It's interesting that Ezekiel, writing several hundred years after David, speaks of another David. Well, of course, a greater than David is going to come. A David who is greater than David. The Christ who will come and sit on the throne and so this is the answer of biblical theology that the Christ is the son of David but also remember this think about the origins of Jesus now so you've got this idea of the Christ coming as the son of David now think about Jesus what does Matthew tell us about Jesus and his origins go back to chapter 1 you see that rather, what may at first sight seem a rather dull genealogy at the beginning. A list of names from which Jesus has descended. And what's one of those names in that list? David. Jesus Christ, the son of David, has come. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus. He too is a son of David. And people began to, to recognize it in him. And so you find the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9. Saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Where did they get that idea from? Well, it's circulating around. Can this man be the son of David? Can you think about his origins? Where does he come from? He's of the line of David. And they begin to ask, is he... Is he the son, the son of David? So Matthew 12:23, "Can this be the son of David?" And began to wonder, is he the promised son, not just a son, but the son of David?" And as he entered into Jerusalem for the last time in chapter 21, remember all the crowds shouting, "Hosanna to the son of David." And then when he went to the temple, the children crying out, "Hosanna to the son of David, the son of David." So here we have the Christ is the son of David. Here we have Jesus, the son of David. Jesus is the Christ, you see. The implication is clear. But Jesus pushes it a bit further. Because then he goes on with another question. Because the idea of son of David is only half the answer. And it could still be misunderstood. So he asks a question based on Psalm 110. Verse 43, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Just focus on that verse that's quoted there in verse 44. Psalm 110 verse 1 what's interesting about this verse is that the Lord is speaking to my Lord, the two Lords in that uh, verse. And if you compare it with the Old Testament Hebrew, the first Lord is Yahweh, the great eternal covenant making God. So the Lord, that Lord, says to my Lord, a different Lord now, the Lord of David. And that second Lord is Adonai. Which simply means Master, Lord. And what's clear from the Psalm, and you may have noticed this as he sang through it, it starts off talking about this, uh, this Lord, my Lord, as a king, but then he is also a priest of the order of Melchizedek. A new order, if you like. A different kind of priest. And this is the Messiah you see, the priest king who sits on the throne of David and the puzzle here for that Jesus is raising with the Pharisees is how is it that, this, that David who is the ancestor of this Messiah is calling his descendant Lord so that's a strange thing you see in Jewish thinking Fathers are always superior to their sons. And so the son would always call the father Lord. And your grandfather and your great grandfather. And so there would be a kind of hierarchy of respect and honor given to ancestors. And yet David calls his descendant my Lord. What a strange thing. It should be the other way around by right. But here it isn't. And the point here is that the Pharisees have misunderstood something about the Messiah. They think of him only as a human descendant of David. Another great like David who come and dwell in Jerusalem literally and sit on the throne and all the nations would come to him. But that's a complete misunderstanding of the nature of the Messiah. And there are three factors in this psalm that really help us to see that. First of all, notice how Jesus says this this psalm is written by David in the Spirit, or or, or, um, with the Spirit. In other words, this psalm is coming with divine authority. This is not just an old text that we can take or leave. This is God speaking. And God is saying something profound about this this Lord. So Jesus is quoting the authoritative word of God, and so it needs to be considered carefully. It can't simply be dismissed. Simply. Simply. And you and I this morning, we need to consider carefully everything that God has said about this Lord. So that's the first thing. It's a, a, an authoritative statement. Second thing is notice the extent of the lordship of this Messiah. All his enemies shall be put under his feet. In other words, this Messiah is Lord of all. He is. Lord of lords. He is above every other power and authority. And Lord and every enemy of Jesus Christ, of of the Christ, will be brought under his feet. And he is the one, therefore, before whom everyone must give an account for their lives. And in the end, all enemies of the Messiah shall be defeated. doesn't look like it today. church looks very beleaguered. Uh, churches are declining and uh, struggling in many ways, except a few. But churches are generally declining in the West. But in the end, Jesus will put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus wins, you see. That's why this question, who do you think, what do you think of about the Christ, is so important. You see, your answer to that question will matter in eternity. Because the question is whether you are a friend of Jesus or you're an enemy of Jesus. It's such an important thing. So the third thing he says about this, this Lord is that he is at the right hand of God. He is exalted to the right hand of God. This is a unique position. And any Jew listening to that statement would realize that this, this is a position that's equivalent to deity, that he is a divine Lord, that this son of David is not simply a son of man, but he is the son, a son of God. He is divine himself. He is co equal with God, having all divine authority. So friends, can you see how this is such a, a powerful question to these Pharisees? It uses scripture that cannot be broken. It shows us that Christ, the son of David, is Lord over all people. It shows us that this Christ is both man and God. At the same time, and if this Jesus is that Son of David, and he's here standing in front of the Pharisees, what are they going to do with him? Which brings us to our final point: What are we going to do with Jesus? How are we going to answer Jesus' question? What do you think about? The Christ. What do you think about whose son he is? That's as relevant a question today as it was 2,000 years ago. What do you make of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting that these uh, well-learned men who knew their Bibles inside out or so they thought couldn't give an answer. Verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Why couldn't they give an answer? Perhaps they realize the implications of giving a more developed right answer. That if they say that Jesus Christ is Lord, the son of David and God, then perhaps they should acknowledge him as Lord. Lord. And if this Jesus Christ is who he Jesus is the Christ, then they should bow down to him in holy fear and also wonder and love. But oh, that would upend everything for them, wouldn't it? It would ruin their careers, it would mess up their position in society, it would probably impoverish them, it would cause all kinds of trouble. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And that's the problem, isn't it? It's not an intellectual problem for people to become Christians. People try and present it as an intellectual problem. But it's actually a moral problem. And a life-changing moral problem. Because to bow bow the knee to Jesus Christ... Is to, in a sense, be willing to give up everything for him, if necessary. It may cost you. cost you your job. It may cost you your friendships. It may cost you all kinds of things. It might impoverish you. And that's the problem. That's why people don't give answers. To bow before Jesus and to acknowledge him, that's, that's no small thing. And I don't underestimate the cost of doing that. And it's no, no small thing for you to do the same. Uh, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're silent before God. You don't want to answer that question. Who is this Christ? Maybe you're sitting in a sea of confusion this morning. You, you want to say, yes, he's Lord, but I, I don't want the, the consequences of his lordship. And so can you, know, can you gladly say, he's my Lord, he's my God. And I bow, my, bow the knee before him today maybe you're still asking the wrong questions questions about your existence questions about the meaning of life questions about your purpose in life and all the people are often just spending all the time trying to find that thing they're supposed to do in life plenty of people interested in politics people give themselves to politics because they think it really makes a difference maybe it makes a little bit of difference but it's good to be a politician I suppose amongst many other things But you will never find the answer to your purpose in life until you settle this question Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man who stands before you? What are you going to do with him? How are you going to respond to him? It's only when you get answers to those questions that everything else will then start to fall into place. Who is the Christ? Whose son is he? Is he my authority? Is he my Lord? Is he my God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage again. Thank you for Jesus, who is so clear from Scripture, but who he was and is. We pray you'd enable us to see him clearly, to respond to him rightly and not to hold on to the things of this world and desires and passions that we may have, but to bring them all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.